Section 22 of the Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10, by Anonymous. Translated by Richard Francis Burton. The Manner of the Nights. And now, after considering the matter, I will glance at the language and style of the knights. The first point to remark is the peculiarly happy framework of the Requiel, which I cannot but suspect set an example to the Decameron and its host of successors. The admirable introduction, a perfect misa and scene, gives the amplest raison d'etre of the work, which thus has all the unity required for a great romantic Requiel. We perceive this when reading the contemporary Hindu work, the Kata Sarit Sagara, which is at once so like and so unlike the knights. Here the preamble is insufficient. The whole is clumsy for want of a thread upon which the many independent tales and fables should be strung, and the consequent disorder and confusion tell upon the reader, who cannot remember the sequence without taking notes. As was said in my foreword, without the knights, no Arabian knights. And now, so far from holding the pauses and intolerable interruption to the narrative, I attach additional importance to these pleasant and restful breaks introduced into long and intricate stories. Indeed, beginning again, I should adopt the plan of the Cal edit, opening and ending every division with a dialogue between the sisters. Upon this point, however, opinions will differ, and the critic will remind me that the consensus of the manuscript would be wanting. The Breslet edit, in many places, merely interjects the number of the night without interrupting the tale. The manuscript in the Bibliothèque Nationale, used by Galland, contains only 282, and the Frenchman ceases to use the division after the 236th night, and in some editions after the 197th. A fragmentary manuscript, according to Scott, whose friend J. Anderson found it in Bengal, breaks away after night 29, and in the Wortley Montague, the sultan relents at an early opportunity, the stories, as in Galland, continuing only as an amusement. I have been careful to preserve the balanced sentences with which the tales open, the tautology and the prose rhyme serving to attract attention, for example, in days of yore and in times long gone, before there was a king, etc. In England, where we strive not to waste words, this becomes once upon a time. The closings also are artfully calculated by striking a minor chord after the rush and hurry of the incidents to suggest repose, and they led the most pleasurable of lives and the most delectable till there came to them the destroyer of delights and the severer of societies, and they became as though they had never been. Place this by the side of the Boccaccio's favorite formula, Egli conquistio poi la scosia e fune recoronato, et onorevolmente vise infino alla fine, molte volte goderono del loro amore, idio faccia noi goder del nostro, e così nera su grossezza si rimase e ancor visista. We have further docked this tale into, and they lived happily ever after.
I cannot take up the knights in their present condition without feeling that the work has been written down from the Ravi or Nakal, the contour or professional storyteller, also called Kasas and Mada, corresponding with the Hindu Bhat or Bard. To these men, my learned friend Baron A. von Kremer would attribute the Mu'alakat, vulgarly called the suspended poems, as being indicted from the relation of the Ravi. Hence, in our text, the frequent interruption of the formula Kal Aravi, quotes the reciter, Dice Torpino. Moreover, the knights read in many places like a handbook or guide for the professional, who would learn them by heart here and there introducing his gag and patter. To this business, possibly we may attribute much of the ribaldry which starts up in unexpected places. It was meant simply to provoke a laugh. How old the custom is and how unchangeable is Eastern life is shown, a correspondent suggests, by the Book of Esther, which might form part of the Alf Leila. On that night, we read in chapter 6, part 1, could not the king sleep? and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. The Ravi would declaim the recitative somewhat in conversational style. He would intone the sara or prose rhyme, and he would chant to the twanging of the rabab, a one-stringed viol, the poetical parts. Dr. Scott borrows from the historian of Aleppo a lifelike picture of the storyteller. He recites walking to and fro in the middle of the coffee room, stopping only now and then when the expression requires some emphatical attitude. He is commonly heard with great attention, and not unfrequently in the midst of some interesting adventure, when the expectation of his audience is raised to the highest pitch, he breaks off abruptly and makes his escape, leaving both his hero or heroine and his audience in the utmost embarrassment. Those who happen to be near the door endeavor to detain him, insisting upon the story being finished before he departs. But he always makes his retreat good, and the auditors suspending their curiosity are induced to return at the same time next day to hear the sequel. He has no sooner made his exit than the company in separate parties fall to disputing about the characters of the drama or the event of an unfinished adventure. The controversy, by degrees, becomes serious, and opposite opinions are maintained with no less warmth than if the fall of the city depended upon the decision. At Tangier, where a murder in a coffee house had closed those hovels, pending a sufficient payment to the Pasha, and where during the hard winter of 1885-86, the poorer classes were compelled to puff their kaif, bahang, cannabis indica, and sip their black coffee in the muddy streets under a rainy sky, I found the Rowley active on Sundays and Thursdays, the market days. The favorite place was the Soko de Barra, or large bazaar, outside the town whose condition is that of Suez and Beirut, half a century ago. It is a foul slope, now slippery with viscous mud, then powdery with fetid dust, dotted with graves and decaying tombs, unclean booths, gargots, and tattered tents and frequented by women, mere bundles of unclean rags, and by men wearing the hake or bunus, a Franciscan frock, tending their squatting camels and chaffering over cattle for Gibraltar beef eaters. Here the market people form a ring about the reciter, a stalwart man affecting little raiment besides a broad waist belt into which his lower chiffons are tucked, 
and noticeable only for his shock hair, wild eyes, broad grin, and generally disreputable aspect. He usually handles a short stick, and when drummer and piper are absent, he carries a tiny tom-tom, shaped like an hourglass, upon which he taps the periods. This scaly, as the Irish call him, opens the drama with extempore prayer, proving that he and the audience are good Muslims. He speaks slowly and with emphasis, varying the diction with breaks of animation, abundant action, and the most comical grimace. He advances, retires, and wheels about, illustrating every point with pantomime, and his features, voice, and gestures are so expressive that even Europeans who cannot understand a word of Arabic divine the meaning of his tale. The audience stands breathless and motionless, surprising strangers by the ingenuousness and freshness of feeling hidden under their hard and savage exterior. The performance usually ends with the embryo actor going round for alms and flourishing in air every silver bit, the usual honorarium, being a few flus, that marvelous money of Barbary, big coppers worth one-twelfth of a penny. All the tales I heard were purely local, but Fakri Bey, a young Osmanli domiciled for some time in Fez and Mequinez, assured me that the knights are still recited there. Many travelers, including Dr. Russell, have complained that they failed to find a complete manuscript copy of the knights. Evidently, they never heard of the popular superstition which declares that no one can read through them without dying. It is only fair that my patron should know this. Jacob Artin Pasha declares that the superstition dates from the 14th and 15th centuries, and he explains it in two ways. Firstly, it is a facetious exaggeration, meaning that no one has leisure or patience to wade through the long repertory. Secondly, the work is condemned as futile. When Egypt produced savants and legists like Ibn al-Hajar, al-Aini, and al-Kastalani, to mention no others, the taste of the country inclined to dry factual studies and positive science. Nor, indeed, has this taste wholly died out. There are not a few who, like Kari Pasha, contend that the mathematic is more useful even for legal studies than history and geography, and at Cairo the chief of the educational department has always been an engineer, i.e. a mathematician. The ulema declared war against all futilities, in which they included not only stories, but also what is politely entitled authentic history. From this to the fatal effect of such lecture is only a step. Society, however, cannot rest without light literature, so the novel reading class was thrown back upon writings which had all the indelicacy and few of the merits of the knights. Turkey is the only Muslim country which has dared to produce a regular drama, and to arouse the energies of such brilliant writers as Munif Pasha, statesman and scholar, Ekrem Bey, literato and professor, Kemal Bey, held by some to be the greatest writer in modern Osmanli land, and Abd al-Haq Hamid Bey, first secretary of the London embassy. The theatre began in its ruder form by taking subjects bodily from the knights, then it annexed its plays as we do, the novel having ousted the drama, from the French. And lastly, it took courage to be original. Many years ago, I saw Harun al-Rashid and the Three Calendars with deerskins, 
and all their properties de rigor in the courtyard of government house damascus declaiming to the extreme astonishment and delight of the audience it requires only to glance at the knights for seeing how much histrionic matter they contain in considering the style of the knights we must bear in mind that the work has never been edited according to our ideas of the process Consequently, there is no just reason for translating the whole verbatim et literatum, as has been done by Torrens, Lane, and Payne in his Tales from the Arabic. This conscientious treatment is required for versions of an author like Camus, whose works were carefully corrected and arranged by a competent literature, but is not merited by the knights as they now are. The Macnaughton, the Bulak, and the Beirut texts, though printed from manuscripts identical in order, often differ in minor matters. Many friends have asked me to undertake the work, but even if lightened by the aid of the sheikhs, munshis, and copyists, the labor would be severe, tedious, and thankless. Better leave the holes open than patch them with fancy work or with heterogeneous matter. The learned, indeed, as Lane tells us, being thoroughly dissatisfied with the plain and popular, the ordinary and vulgar note of the language, have attempted to refine and improve it, and have more than once threatened to remodel it, that is, to make it odious. This would be to dress up Robert Burns in plumes borrowed from Dryden and Pope. The first defect of the texts is in the distribution and arrangement of the matter, as I have noticed in the case of Sinbad the Seaman, Moreover, many of the earlier nights are overlong, and not a few of the others are overshort. This, however, has the prime recommendation of variety. Even the vagaries of editor and scribe will not account for all the incoherences, disorder, and inconsequence, and for the vain iterations which suggest that the author has forgotten what he said. In places, there are dead allusions to persons and tales which are left dark. For example, volume 1, page 43, 57, 61, etc. The digressions are abrupt and useless, leading nowhere, while sundry pages are wearisome for excess of prolixity or hardly intelligible for extreme conciseness. The perpetual recurrence of mean colloquialisms and of words and idioms peculiar to Egypt and Syria also takes from the pleasure of the perusal. Yet we cannot deny that it has its use this unadorned language of familiar conversation in its day adapted for the understanding of the people is best fitted for the Ravi's craft in the camp and caravan, the harem, the bazaar, and the coffee house. Moreover, as has been well said, the Knights is the only written halfway house between the literary and colloquial Arabic which is accessible to all, and thus it becomes necessary to the students who would qualify themselves for service in Muslim lands from Mauritania to Mesopotamia. It freely uses Turkish words like katun and Persian terms as shabandar, thus requiring for translation not only a somewhat archaic touch, but also a vocabulary borrowed from various sources. Otherwise, the effect would not be reproduced. In places, however, the style rises to the highly ornate approaching the pompous. For example, the Waziriel addresses in the tale of King Jaliad. The battle scenes, mostly admirable, are told with the conciseness of a despatch and the vividness of an artist, the two combining to form perfect word pictures. Of the Badia, 
or euphistic style, parlaying euphemism, and of al-saja, the prose rhyme, I shall speak in a future page. The characteristics of the whole are naivety and simplicity, clearness and singular concision. The gorgeousness is in the imagery, not in the language. The words are weak, while the sense, as in the classical Scandinavian books, is strong. And here, the Arabic differs diametrically from the florid exuberance and turgid amplifications of the Persian storyteller, which sound so hollow and unreal by the side of a chaster model. It abounds in formula, such as repetitions of religious phrases which are unchangeable. There are certain stock comparisons, as Lachman's wisdom, Joseph's beauty, Jacob's grief, Job's patience, David's music, and Miriam the virgin's chastity. The eyebrow is a nun, the eye a sad, the mouth a mim. A hero is more prudent than the crow, a better guide than the katagrouse, more generous than the cock, warier than the crane, braver than the lion, more aggressive than the panther, finer sighted than the horse, craftier than the fox, greedier than the gazelle, more vigilant than the dog, and thriftier than the ant. The cupboy is a sun rising from the dark underworld symbolized by his collar. His cheek mole is a crumb of ambergris. His nose is a scimitar girded at the curve. His lower lip is a jujube. His teeth are the Pleiades, or hailstones. His brow locks are scorpions. His young hair on the upper lip is an emerald. His side beard is a swarm of ants, or a lamb letter enclosing the roses or anemones of his cheek. The cup girl is a moon who rivals the sheen of the sun. Her forehead is a pearl set off by the jet of her idiot fringe. Her eyelashes scorn the sharp sword, and her glances are arrows shot from the bow of the eyebrows. A mistress necessarily belongs, though living in the next street, to the Wadi Liwa, and to a hostile clan of Badawin, whose blades are ever thirsting for the lover's blood, and whose malignant tongues aim only at the defilement of separation. Youth is upright as an aleph, or slender and bending as a branch of the ban tree, which we should call a willow wand. While age, crabbed and crooked, bends groundwards, vainly seeking in the dust his lost juvenility. As Baron de Slane says of these stock comparisons, the figurative language of Muslim poets is often difficult to be understood. The narcissus is the eye, the feeble stem of that plant bends languidly under its dower, and thus recalls to mind the languor of the eyes. Pearls signify both tears and teeth. The latter are sometimes called hailstones from their whiteness and moisture. The lips are cornelians or rubies. The gums a pomegranate flower. The dark foliage of the myrtle is synonymous with the black hair of the beloved, or with the first down on the cheeks of puberty. The down itself is called the izar, or headstall of the bridal, and the curve of the izar is compared to the letters lam and nun. Ringlets trace on the cheek or neck the letter wa. They are called scorpions, as the Greek, either from their dark color or their agitated movements. The eye is a sword, the eyelids scabbards, the whiteness of the complexion camphor, and a mole or a beauty spot musk, which term denotes also dark hair. 
A mole is sometimes compared also to an ant creeping on the cheek towards the honey of the mouth. A handsome face is both a full moon and day. Black hair is night. The waist is a willow branch or a lance. The water of the face is self-respect. A poet sells the water of his face when he bestows mercenary praises on a rich patron. This does not sound promising, yet, as has been said of Arab music, the persistent repetition of the same notes in the minor key is by no means monotonous and ends with haunting the ear, occupying the thought and touching the soul. Like the distant frog concert and chirp of the cicada, the creak of the water wheel and the stroke of hammers upon the anvil from afar, the murmur of the fountain, the sigh of the wind and the plash of the wavelet, they occupy the sensorium with a soothing effect, forming a barbaric music full of sweetness and peaceful pleasure. End of section 22